Uh, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at what it is to be a part of the body of Christ, what it is to be a member of a church. And so we looked at last week spiritual authority, and we saw how Jesus calls leaders to three things. He calls them to humility. He calls them to awareness. And he calls them to hope. And the first two, he calls them to humility. He calls them to a childlike humility. The second thing is he calls them to a great awareness of themselves, uh, to be aware of their own pride and self-conceit and their, their ability to have their own life and the, and the life of those around them sort of go off the rails. And that's important for us to remember. And it's important for us to remember that Jesus gives serious warnings to Christians who are in spiritual leadership. He's saying, I'm going to put people before you who I'm calling to be uh, humble. And therefore, uh, the warnings that he gives to leaders uh, who are in positions to take advantage of those people should give us all pause, should make us all kind of shudder. And so he encourages leaders to be humble, uh, to be aware of themselves, but he also calls them to hope. Because he says, uh, as difficult as this challenge is, as aware as you should be of your own heart and your own habits, your own propensity to be selfish, you should know that wherever two or more of you are, I will be there. And I will minister through you. I'll minister to you. So you can have tremendous hope. And so we talked a lot about uh, spiritual spiritual leadership, and, and we looked at the life of the church. And I think if we look at the life of the church, we should have some hope. We should be hopeful about the church, but we should also be incredibly humble, incredibly humble, and have an urgency to our faith that we continue to look deeper and deeper into the scriptures and deeper and more longingly at Jesus himself. So I'm going to invite you to do just that, and let's look at uh, John chapter 3. Because in John chapter 3, we have a case study of a spiritual leader who takes on the childlike humility that Jesus is championing. So uh, open up your Bibles or look in, in your apps to John 3, and I'm just going to read these first uh, 15 verses. This is uh, the word of the Lord. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. 
If I have told you earthly things and you did not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And that's the word of the Lord. So thanks be to God. So you see a man who is clearly in process, who's clearly in discover, discovery mode. And in this late night exchange with Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews, he is already showing these signs of humility and awareness and hope. And so let's look at this passage and let's think of it in, in, in three ways. Let's see the restlessness of man. Let's look at the goodness of God. And let's consider the return of his children. Okay. So first, the restlessness of man. You know, studies show that there's a direct correlation between our emotions and our sleep habits. Uh, sometimes, often, in my adult years, I get up in the middle of the night because I'm inspired. But I also get up in the middle of the night because oftentimes I worry and I can't stay in bed. And I know that's not just me. I know that all of us, or I, sh I won't condemn everybody. I know that's, that uh, a lot of us, do that. A lot of us feel that way. Uh, the New York City is called the city that never sleeps, right? And of course, it's called that because there's so much going on. It's such a huge, dynamic city. Uh, there's industry happening at all times. There's fun things happening at all times. But it, there's another side to that, and that is we're a city that never sleeps because we lie awake at night, not sure what to do with ourselves. Maybe we're driven. We're so driven that we're we uh, wake up at night in a panic because we don't know that we'll ever arrive. Or maybe we feel uh, alone in this city, and so we wake up in the middle of the night wondering, will I ever belong? Or maybe we live here, we love living here, but the people that we love don't live here. And we wonder, where, where am I supposed to dwell? So there's all kinds of reasons why we wake up in the middle of the night. We're the city that never sleeps, right? And it's because we lie awake at night, we toss, we turn, we're restless. We don't know what to do with it. Nicodemus is not that dissimilar to us. Nicodemus gets up in the middle of the night and he goes alone to see Jesus. And the question is, why? Why does this ruler of the Jews go out of his way to be with Jesus? And commentators say, you know, there's a bunch of sort of characteristics of this passage. They say, first of all, this passage has a, an overwhelming sense of danger about it because he goes at night, right? Uh, that there's also a, a, a degree of fear in this passage because Nicodemus is afraid to be seen with Jesus. Uh, there's also... Um, what do I say? Uh, there's a bit of anxiety, I think, for Nicodemus. Because even though he's the ruler of the Jews, when he's standing in the presence of Jesus, after seeing some of the things that Jesus has seen, uh, uh, as done, after hearing the things that Jesus has said, he's standing in the midst of somebody that, in a sense, he has to, you know, there's some anxiety about that, a little nerves about that. But I think there's something else going on here that is not necessarily mentioned, but I think it just permeates the passage. And that is, there's an incredible degree of humility happening in this passage. 
See, he doesn't just come here um, because uh, of anxiety, but I think out of a deep sense of humility before Jesus, he brings his anxiety, he brings his concerns, both professional and personal, to Jesus. And where do you see that? In verse 2, he says something that none of his colleagues, none of his peers, none of the other spiritual leaders will say. And he admits, and that is this, he admits that Jesus came from God. That takes a tremendous amount of humility for somebody to say that. He readily admits it. He says that Jesus has come from God. And so I think the primary reason he gets out of bed is his humility. And it's interesting, he doesn't come, you know he's not primarily there for his professional reasons because he doesn't talk about the things of the state. He talks about the things of the soul. Now, what does it mean to be a ruler of the Jews? It doesn't just mean that he's a spiritual leader. It means that he is a political leader. It means that he is uh, a leader in academic institutions. Nicodemus is a person of tremendous influence. And in my ignorance, I'm not sure who that counterpart would be in modern-day New York City uh, in, the, in the Jewish world. But I know in the Christian world, that counterpart is probably somebody like Cardinal Dolan. Cardinal Dolan is a spiritual leader in this community. When politicians need things to get done, uh, when they need to have conversations with uh, you know, Christians in the city, they talk to him. He oversees institutions in this city, uh, academic institutions in the city. So he has tremendous, tremendous influence. And I think when this person, you know, Nicodemus, who's just like, who is in some sense like Dolan, he sees Jesus and the way that he effortlessly wields his power. I think it brings him to a place of humility. And I think we see a little bit of it here. Jesus, Nicodemus says, Jesus has come from God, and therefore he goes to Nicodemus. That's the first aspect of humility. The second is, is when he gets in the presence of Jesus, he listens more than he speaks. He asks more questions than things that he states. And I think the primary example of his childlike humility is that he lets Jesus have the last word. Even when Jesus says the most challenging thing to this religious, political, uh, academic leader, you cannot, you must be born again. He, he allows Jesus to have the last word. Incredible humility. Uh, there's one uh, sign that Jesus does. It's further on in the book that I think represents maybe some of the miracles that he's that he's. Uh, Scene and that and this one is in John eight and John eight, Jesus is teaching in the in the temple courts, and the scribes and the Pharisees, those people that that Nicodemus rules over, they come and they throw a woman down at his feet and they accuse her of adultery. What a scene, right? He's teaching, and they throw this woman there, and what everybody says is they're not the people the scribes and the Pharisees throw this woman who's accused of adultery. And they say, and they're not looking for justice because adultery, as we know, takes two people and there's no man there. And so they're not looking for justice. They're actually there to shame this woman and to embarrass Jesus. 
But Jesus does something incredible. He, he bends down and he begins to doodle in the dirt. And he says one sentence. He says, whoever uh, has not sinned, let him cast the first stone. And one by one, probably students, but of the scribes and the Pharisees, they turn and walk away because they've been convicted of their own sin. And that woman standing there left with Jesus, who is the only one who can cast a stone. And I think Nicodemus, who probably was there that day, he sees that and he says, Jesus can do <laughs> more with one sentence and doodling in the dirt than all the networking and bureaucracy and fundraising that I could do in a lifetime. He turns hearts effortlessly. He's humbled. He's humbled by Jesus, and therefore he goes to him. Let me ask you, where do you go when you wake up in the morning? Where do you turn? To what do you turn? To who do you turn? When you turn to wherever you turn, does it make you more humble? Does it, make, does it humiliate you? Don't take, don't take your 3 a.m. mornings. You're getting out of bed in the middle of the night mornings for granted. You can meet God in those mornings. Nicodemus did. Nicodemus did. So in those 3 a.m. opportunities, go to the one who, who came from God. Listen, ask questions, refuse to have the last word. Every one of us has fears all the time, both professional fears, personal fears. Take them to God, and in Jesus, he will show you his goodness. So let's look at the second part, the goodness of God. How does Jesus show Nicodemus his goodness? Well, one of the things is just the most obvious thing. It's a little silly to say it. Um, he receives Jesus. Now, if you're a New Yorker, you're saying, well, that's probably the most powerful miracle of all. He takes him into his home, right, in, in the middle of the night. He takes him in. But we also should understand what happens right before this passage. Right before this passage, Jesus clears the temple. Jesus goes into the temple, and what has happened in the temple, it was a place of holiness, and it was a place that's sacred. But it's become a place that's co-opted. It's become a place of corruption. It's a marketplace. And Jesus goes in, and he flips over the table, and he takes a, a, a whip that's really used for livestock and animals, and he begins to shoo and scatter everybody in the temple. And he says, this is my father's house. This is a sacred place. This is a holy place. And that act is a huge indictment of Nicodemus. And right after that, he welcomes him in. Right after that, he receives him. And he says, he doesn't say you're late. He doesn't say you're early. It's like you're right on time. See, what we see here is the goodness of God. I think sometimes we think that we turn to God because of his power, because of his might, because, you know, who he is. We can't wrap our, our mind around that. But the power and the might of God is one thing. But where people actually are changed, where people are, are transformed is not in his power and his might. It's in his goodness. It's how lovely and kind he is. And when we think about God as Christians, we should be thinking, um, like, how did I become a Christian? 
because I experienced the loveliness of the heart of Christ. The loveliness of the heart of Christ. Um, Dane Ortland. Dane Ortland has written a book. I've been quoting from it uh, all year called Gentle and Lowly. And in this book, he's inter interacting in this section with Jonathan Edwards, who was a, a, you know, a theologian, one time president of Yale. And in this uh, passage, he says this. He says, when sinners and sufferers come to Christ, the person they find is exceedingly excellent and lowly. For they come to one who is not not only of excellent majesty and of perfect purity and brightness, but also one in whom this majesty is conjoined with the sweetest grace. Jesus is exceedingly ready to receive them. And so he's exceedingly ready to receive Nicodemus. And I think, yes, he's exceedingly ready to receive Nicodemus. Now let me just, I've shared one illustration about a sign of Jesus. Well, two. Let me just show a third so we can see uh, the fullness and the proper proportionality of the heart of Christ. So this is in chapter three. This book's just getting started. Jesus is just at the start of his ministry. So what is Nicodemus basing all of his uh, motivation on, his humility on? It's essentially two miracles that are listed there. So you see the, the clearing of the temple, but the first miracle that he does is the wedding at Cana, where he turns water into wine. And we, perhaps you know the story, right? I assume most of you do. In the wedding of Cana, there is a, a he's a guest at a wedding, and there's a snafu, there's a, a scheduling mishap, and they don't order enough wine, and so the couple could be really embarrassed. And a nice thing for Jesus to do is would be to come in and say. I'm going to help you save face. I'm going to turn this water into wine. This is the very first miracle of Jesus. This is the very, like, the announcing miracle of Jesus. But he doesn't just come in and, and save face for them. He gives them the greatest wine that's ever been drank. There's people in this room who like wine, who spend a lot of money on wine. You're not really drinking wine. The wine they drink is wine. It's the real thing. What we drink is proximate to what he gave them. This couple, and there's lots of couples here that have been married recently who have spent a lot of time and energy putting together a wedding. They blew it. He doesn't just come in and, and you know save face for them. He comes and he, he takes this party to another level, right? So with the clearing of the temple, we see justice. Here we see grace. We see, we see with the, the turning of water into wine, the sweetest grace coming out of the delight of God for these people. Ortland says this, this is a heart, the heart of Jesus. This is the heart that upbraids the impenitent. It's a heart that upbraids those who live without regrets. But it's also, uh, it's a heart that upbraids the impenitent with all the harshness that is appropriate, yet it embraces the penitent, the regretful, with more openness than we're ever able to truly feel. And then he says this, Christ's heart is a heart that walks us into the bright meadow of the felt love of God. It is a heart that drew the despised and forsaken to his feet in self-abandoning hope. It is a heart of perfect balance and proportion, never overreacting 
never excusing, never lashing out. It is a heart that throbs with desire for the destitute. It is a heart that floods the suffering with the deep solace of shared solidarity in that suffering. It is a heart that is gentle and lowly. It is not just gentle and lowly. It's gentle and lowly for you. So here's the lesson for us. We just see the beauty of the, of the heart of God in Christ. That is not something that you can just run by and experience. We just can't cram beauty into our lives. We can't do beauty on the run. You have to make time for beauty. You have to sit in beauty. You have to gaze at beauty. You have to, you know, take beauty in. And if it's at three in the morning, so be it. Just personally, some of the best experiences I've ever had in my relationship with God has come at three in the morning. And I'm at a place now where I'm saying, where I, where if I'm lying in bed and I am tossing and turning and frustrated, then I say something to the effect of, okay, God, is this what we're going to do? And I get up. And I, in a sense, gaze on this. So we can't cram beauty into just these small spaces in our lives. You know, the spirit moves as the spirit moves, like the wind. And I think the only difference between the scribes and the Pharisees and Nicodemus is that he is, he didn't run by this beauty. That by the spirit of God, he had an opportunity to be in the presence of Jesus. And he took it. And his life changed. And the next, sec the next uh, point is all about being transformed into the children of God. And sometimes that's for the first time, and sometimes that's a return to being a child of God. And all of that takes place by simply looking at Jesus, just looking at him. Uh, in here, Jesus makes a, a, a reference that a lot of us would find strange. But Nicodemus gets. He references a small story in, in Numbers 21. And it's a story where the children of God have rebelled, as they often do. And they're uh, impenitent. They're frustrated with Moses. They're kvetching, right? And what God does as an act of judgment, he sends snakes into the camp. And these snakes, these vipers, are poisonous. And they begin to bite the people of God. And they get sick. And they die. Some die. And so out of fear, out of pain, sorrow, suffering, they go to Moses and they say, tell him to stop. Tell him to relent, please. And so Moses goes to God and, he's, and, and instead of removing the snakes, though, he shows them the snakes once again. But he shows them the snakes by telling Moses to, uh, to create a statue and put it on a pole. And it's a statue of a bronze serpent. Instead of removing the snakes, he says, have them look at that. Have them look at that. And the implication is this. Jesus, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, what they needed to do, you know, they were in danger physically back in the day. But what's happening now is you're in danger spiritually. You're, we're always in danger spiritually. But he's saying, if Moses is saying, uh, God says to Moses, have them look at this serpent and they'll be healed. 
But he's also, Jesus is now saying to Nicodemus, how can you be healed? By looking at me when I'm lifted up. By seeing me lifted up on the cross. That's the appointed means of God's healing. The serpent was the appointed means of God's healing in times of old. And the cross is the, the appointed means of, time, of God's healing in the present. Christ lifted up on the cross. One commentator says this. He says, Jesus' single greatest act, the act that showed his heart more than anything else, showed the, the power and the might of God, but the goodness of God, is Jesus being lifted up, hoisted up onto the cross. Look at that. And God says, as you gaze on that, as you don't just cram it in, don't just run by it, but as you look on that, you will be changed. I know that still sounds weird. But that's the promise of the gospel. Gaze on Jesus. You'll understand God. You'll understand your life. And you'll understand that you are a child of God. And maybe that'll be for the first time, but maybe it's a return. But should you just do that once? No. Charles Spurgeon says this, uh, the only ones who looked to the serpent and derived any cure were those who had been stung by the vipers. The common notion is that salvation is for the good. Salvation is for those who fight against temptation. Salvation is for the spiritually healthy. Spurgeon reminds us God's medicine is for the sick and his healing for the diseased. He also says, remember this, uh, this remedy healed, not just once, but again and again. Very possibly after a man had been healed, he might go back to his work, and be attacked again by a second serpent, for there were broods of them about, says Spurgeon. If he were, but if he were wounded a thousand times, he must look a thousand times to, to the serpent. Such was the efficacy of the cure. And he says, remember this, there was not one case in the camp of a man. There was not one case in the camp of a man who looked to the serpent of grass and yet died. And there will never be a case of a man that looks to Jesus who remains under condemnation. We don't know what happened really that night. Jesus, Jesus had the last word. And then we don't hear from Nicodemus for 16 chapters. But the next time we see G Nicodemus... He is at the grave of Jesus, and he has gone from being one who has been flushed out of the temple, scurried out of the temple, to one who's standing at the grave of Jesus. But he doesn't stand alone. He doesn't stand in the dark. And if he was ever a part of the corruption in the temple, his heart has changed on that because he stands there with what it says is 75 pounds of spices. And 75 pounds of spices in that day was enough to make the richest man bankrupt. Nicodemus saw the beauty of Christ. It changed him. He went from being a ruler to being ruled. But being ruled by one, his heart was so beautiful, it was a, it was a pleasure to be ruled by. And he lived for the rest of his life, we never hear from him again, dependent on God. May sound counterintuitive. It's definitely countercultural. Being dependent on God will get you out of bed in the middle of the night for a lot of different reasons. But it's worth it. And there's a peace and a comfort about it that surpasses all understanding. That's the gospel. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we want to be children that are teachable. What a sign of humility it is to be teachable in anything. And Lord, I pray for us as, uh, as friends, as neighbors, as brothers and sisters in our lives that, that we would be people of lifelong learners of your love. And I pray, Lord, that whatever this church does, it wouldn't be seen as by our effort, but it would be seen because of your effortless work through us. Um, let us embody your love or nothing at all. I pray this in Jesus' name.